Brothers and sisters, if you don't change your ways, you are on the road to Jam Nation. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 28 of Road to Jam Nation. For any new listeners out there, I am in the midst of a deep dive into the music of 1987, with initial episodes reviewing the musical trends of the year and leading up to a pair of episodes in which I will reveal my top 20 favorite albums of the year. I began this project in episode 25, so if you're a new listener, you may want to rewind and go back and start at that episode. Or, of course, you can also start at episode number one of this podcast to find out the methodology and some of the self-enforced rules that I place on myself in developing these lists. For this episode, I'm going to go ahead and start with a discussion of the prog music of the era. Prog music hadn't really made the jump from the 1970s to the 1980s very well. A number of the 70s prog bands had tried to update their sounds for the synthesizer generation, but the results tended to be pretty awful in my opinion. But there definitely were still prog bands around, for better or for worse. The band Yes had been one of those bands trying to adjust to the times, and commercially Yes had been quite successful at it delivering the best-selling album of their career with the album 90125 back in 1983. Yes, finally followed up that album in 1987 with another album titled Big Generator. I played the title song from this album as the intro music to this episode. Big Generator also sold well. It went platinum, but the sales for the album were still a steep drop from the triple platinum results the band had gained for 90125. Two songs from Big Generator would wind up being the fifth and the sixth songs from Yes to cross over to the U.S. pop charts, though both these songs were fairly minor hits on that chart, at number 30 and number 40, with the song Love Will Find a Way being the bigger of those two songs. When I reviewed the album 90125 for my 1983 countdown, I was surprised to find that I actually really enjoyed that album. To me, 90125 has aged pretty well, despite the fact that I had always seen it as a so-called sellout album when it was originally released. But I can't give the same sort of praise for the album Big Generator. After Yes's surprise pop success with 90125, the band was trying a bit too hard on this album to repeat the formulas. And to me, it sounds like desperate pandering, though I do actually like the title song that I played to start the episode. Alan Parsons' project had not abandoned their 70s prog ambitions in the 1980s, but the band had gotten more adept at including some concise pop radio-friendly songs on their continued string of complex concept albums during the 1980s, and Alan Parsons' project had landed a string of pretty decent pop hits between 1980 and 1984. After that, Alan Parsons' project reached the level of diminishing returns. Their 1987 album, Gaudi, was a concept album dedicated to the Spanish architect, Antony Gaudi, though it's a fairly ponderous-sounding attempt at a concept album to me. I guess maybe the band was trying to take seriously the idea of dancing about architecture. As the clever old adage goes, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. 
The album Gaudi wound up being the worst charting album of Alan Parson Project's career, and the band wound up dissolving before recording their next album, Freudinia. Freudinia wound up becoming a solo rock opera that was credited to band member Eric Wolfson, even though the entire Alan Parsons Project band does actually perform on the album. The band Supertramp had spent most of their career as one of the more pop-friendly and accessible prog-style bands. But by 1987, Supertramp had definitely lost their way. Supertramp's 1987 album, Free as a Bird, is just wretched in my opinion. I couldn't bring myself to sit through the entire album. The band attempted on this album to adapt its sound to be more dance-pop-oriented, and they just were not good at that style at all. The album produced no hits for the band, and had the band's worst sales since their second album had come out back in 1971. The Prog Gods Rush were doing well with a more commercial style in the 1980s. Rush had done well early in the 1980s at writing some more concise, radio-friendly songs instead of their more complex epics. The band had also brought in synthesizers, which helped them to record their only song to cross over to the U.S. pop charts back in 1982 with the song New World Man. Rush's 1987 album, Hold Your Fire, contained a major rock radio and MTV video hit with the song Time Stand Still, with Amy Mann on guest supporting vocals. But overall, I think their synthesizer experiments had pretty well run their course. And Hold Your Fire just isn't very deep or interesting to me as an album. And I think Rush felt that way as well, as they would shed much of their synth sound for their following albums after this. The band Saga was another Canadian prog band that never made the sort of big worldwide breakthrough that Rush had done. But Saga was still making music in 1987 as well, releasing their seventh studio album, titled Wildest Dreams. Saga's label made its most ambitious effort at promoting this album in the United States, but the money and the effort went for naught, and the album was just as ignored here as all of the band's prior albums had been, and they pretty well gave up on trying to gain an American foothold after this point. The 1970s band, Manfred Mann's Earth Band, tended to skirt the lines at times between jazz fusion and prog rock. Manfred Mann's Earth Band 1987 album, titled Mask, definitely stood more on the prog rock side of that equation, with heavy influence from classical music as well. But I can say that I didn't like the album very much. To me, the album Mask just sounds pretentious and dated though it seemed to get some positive reviews from the music press at the time. Mike Oldfield's music can be very hard to classify. Oldfield is best known for his song Tubular Bells, which became the theme music for The Exorcist. But Oldfield has been a wildly experimental composer and musician over his career, and he is an inspiration to modern-day ambient and trance-style electronic musicians. However, a lot of Mike Oldfield's output fits well within the prog rock realm, and that includes his 1987 album titled Islands. Oldfield really seemed to be reaching for pop crossover success with this album, with a bit of a who's who of guests that included vocalist Bonnie Tyler on some songs, and Raphael Ravenscroft on saxophone. Ravenscroft is the musician that delivers the iconic sax playing on the song Baker Street by Gary Rafferty. Oldfield's attempts here don't work out well, though. The album isn't very good, and it didn't achieve the pop crossover effect that Oldfield had been hoping for. 
The band Marillion were a generation younger than these other prog bands that I have mentioned, and they were still full of creative energy and fire in 1987. The band was perfectly willing to still make a stand for good old-fashioned high-concept prog rock. Marillion released their fourth album in 1987, Clutching at Straws. I would personally say that this is the second best prog album of the year. There is one prog album that will make an appearance on my top 20 list, but it didn't wind up being this one, obviously. I find the themes on Clutching at Straws to be a bit dark and depressing for steady listening, though musically, the album is definitely very good. One of the most popular, successful, and accessible prog bands of all time, Pink Floyd, had fallen apart in the 1980s, with Roger Waters leaving the band after the miserable album The Final Cut came out in 1983. The rest of Pink Floyd carried on without him after a bitter lawsuit over the continued use of the name without Waters in the band. The other members of the band got to strut a bit when they released the album A Momentary Lapse of Reason in 1987. This album would continue the band's mammoth commercial success, while Roger Waters released Radio Chaos in 1987, which really had unremarkable sales, though two songs off the album did get decent radio play on rock radio stations. However, they weren't that successful compared to the Pink Floyd singles that came out. A Momentary Lapse of Reason wound up including two number one rock radio hits with the songs Learning to Fly and On the Turning Away, and a number five rock radio hit with the song One Slip, while the Roger Waters songs went to number 12 and number 15 on rock radio and didn't really wind up having the sort of classic rock shelf life of those two big hits from the Pink Floyd album. Floyd also followed up this album with a hugely successful world tour playing to stadium-level crowds. However, I myself was disgruntled by this Pink Floyd album, and at the same time, I have never liked any of Waters' solo material very much. I think Pink Floyd was better than the sum of its parts, and with the band broken up into two camps, it made both sides a dissatisfying listening experience to me. The Pink Floyd songs were magnificently produced, and they display all the great keyboards, drums, and guitar parts that the classic era of Pink Floyd is well known for. But to me, the music had lost a lot of its depth and its gravitas, and it sounded to me a bit pandering, while Roger Waters' music on his own just couldn't ever find musicians to match the contributions that Mason, Wright, and Gilmore had supplied to the songs he had written for Pink Floyd. It's been a sad odyssey of bitter feuds and lackluster music from all of them ever since. But let's go ahead and listen to the song On the Turning Away Now, which I think is much better than the very lightweight song Learning to Fly. Enjoy! Some of the old prog rock ambitions had been absorbed into the more experimental metal bands of the era. But also at this point in the 1980s, a new generation of improvisational rock bands was beginning to flourish in little regional scenes. This new trend didn't really have a name as of yet, but it was a lot of bands around the country that were being inspired by the hippie jams of the Grateful Dead 
and the Southern Rock Majesty of the Allman Brothers Band. But many of these bands also absorbed influences from Frank Zappa, from bluegrass, classic rock, prog rock, reggae, and even the sophisticated music of the Talking Heads and some of the 70s kraut rock sounds. And a few of them even added a little bit of Jimmy Buffett to their influences. This created a bunch of bands with an eclectic, modernized new style of jamming that didn't have a name yet, but would eventually be called simply jam bands. There's at least one of these new rising jam bands that wound up in my top 20 slots, along with one of the original godfathers that the jam band music had been inspired by. But there are a few musical notes about bands that aren't in my top 20. Colonel Bruce Hampton was a musician that was a major figure in the Atlanta, Georgia music scene. Hampton would never become a big national name himself, but his band wound up being a birthplace for a bunch of musicians who would become members of some of the major jam bands of the 1990s and beyond, much in the same way that John Mayles' bands in England wound up being an incubator for a number of the great blues rock musicians of the 1960s. Bruce Hampton had not yet formed his most famous band, the Aquarian Rescue Unit, by 1987. That band would include Jimmy Herring, who is now the guitar leader of Widespread Panic, and also spent time in the Allman Brothers Band. And it also included the bass player Oteil Burbage, who would go on to play with the Allman Brothers Band and has been touring in recent years as part of Dead & Company. An Aquarian Rescue Unit also had Jeff Sipe on drums, who would later become part of Leftover Salmon. Colonel Bruce Hampton at the time released a Southern rock-styled album titled Arkansas, and the musicians that worked with him on that particular record included Paul Barrere of Little Feet, Terry Lavitz of the Dixie Dregs, fellow Atlanta musician Tinsley Ellis, who would become a well-known and respected blues rock player, Sonny Emery of Earth, Wind & Fire, and Jan Rico Scott, who would later become a member of Derek Truck's band. While Arkansas is a perfectly listenable album, despite this wealth of musical talent on it, there's nothing on it that really elevates it to the point where it ever competed for a spot in my top 20. Yeah, I'm walking kind of funny Feel I'm fixing to die Yeah, I'm walking kind of funny, Lord Believe I'm fixing to die Yeah, I don't mind dying But I hate to see my children crying The Radiators were a New Orleans band with a swamp rock style. The band became favorites in New Orleans and had become the house band for the annual Mardi Gras Mom's Ball private party there. And as the band's fan base grew across the country, little regional fan groups formed, which began to hold similar private masquerade parties, and some of them would wind up hiring the band to play these parties. The Rads released their third album in 1987, titled Law of the Fish. This was the band's first album to really gain a foothold outside their home region. Law of the Fish got to number 139 on the Billboard charts, and it contained the song Like Dreamers Do, which hit number 23 on rock radio charts. David Grisman's unique dog music blend of gypsy jazz, European folk, mountain music, and American bluegrass won him a wide fan base well beyond the typical audience at the time for straight bluegrass music. David Grisman was also a prolific recording star, 
although in 1987, he had not released an album since 1984, which was an unusually long break for him. Grisman returned in 1987 with a new album titled Svingin' with Svend, which featured Danish jazz violin player Svend Osmussen. This album leaned towards the jazz side of Grisman's style, with a mix of European gypsy jazz and American swing style songs. It's a fun listen. The musicianship is just outstanding, but it's definitely not among my all-time favorite Grisman albums. It's merely a very good one. The Neville Brothers was a group made up of New Orleans royalty, with the Neville family band following in the funky traditions of the Meters, a band that had featured Art Neville on keyboards. In 1987, the Neville Brothers released the third studio album under the Neville Brothers band name. This album was titled Uptown. Unusually for this band, Uptown is really not a very good album. This was the fault of a flawed vision by the producer for the album, who wanted the band to try to make music stripped of their usual New Orleans traditions, thinking he could deliver a contemporary R&B-style album with the band. It really didn't work to the band's strengths at all, and the album just sounds like second-rate mid-80s adult pop music without any solid hooks to actually be pop chart hits. Another one of the godfathers to the jam band music is Carlos Santana. And Carlos Santana had a busy year in 1987, releasing two albums. The first of these was his latest album with his band Santana, and this album was titled Freedom. Earlier in the decade, Santana had made a poorly received effort to update his sound to a more contemporary 80s style with heavy use of synthesizers. But on the album Freedom, Santana returned to the Latin-tinged rock music he was most renowned for. This album still didn't sell well for him, though, but it's solid, enjoyable work. It just doesn't have any of the big standout tracks to push it over the top to match his very best album projects. Later in 1987, Carlos would release his latest solo albums, Blues for Salvador. Salvador Santana was Carlos's son, and he was four years old at the time of this album. Carlos dedicated the album's final song to his son with the title Blues for Salvador, and he wound up titling the album the same thing, although only that one song was actually written with Salvador in mind. The rest of the album is filled out with some outtakes from old Santana band and Carlos solo recording sessions and a couple of other additional new songs. Despite the sort of mishmash of material, this album is surprisingly strong enough that I did give it a bit of consideration for my top 20. And this album also wound up winning Carlos Santana his first ever Grammy Award, when he gained the award for Best Rock Instrumental Performance. of the modern jam band scene would soon become the Vermont band Fish. But at this time, Fish was still a college band playing only to crowds in Vermont. But a major legendary step occurred in Fish's career when Trey Anastasio turned in his senior thesis project at Goddard College in 1987. This thesis consisted of an essay and a recording of his band Fish 
performing his rock opera concept album, The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday. This album was set in the fictional land of Gamehenge. Gamehenge tends to be beloved to most fish fans, with the mythos involved being heavily adopted by the culture of fish heads for iconography, for bad puns, and cause for celebration whenever pieces of the story would find their way into a fish concert. As for myself, years later, in 1993, when I first saw Fish play live, I knew nothing of this history. I had befriended at the time some East Coast hippies that had relocated to the Reno area, and I agreed to go check out this band from back east with them. The show I went to saw was at the Crest Theater in Sacramento, and that show is now legendary among Fish fans as one of the small number of occasions that Fish performed the entire The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday rock opera in its entirety. As mentioned, I didn't know the difference at the time. For all I knew as I watched this concert, this was just a typical Fish show. And I liked some of the songs, and I thought others were rather silly, as I thought a lot of the story narration was sort of corny. And I've never really embraced the Game Henge saga as anything important to myself, like most fans of Fish do. I still think to this day that the Game Henge saga sounds like exactly what it actually was an early try at songwriting by an affluent and sheltered young geek who had not yet had enough life experience to write anything particularly meaningful. But there are a number of songs that I really love the musical arrangements for. And there's a few of the songs that I really enjoy the vocal arrangements for as well. Though the members of Fish are not by any means the most skilled vocalists. So anyway, given that I am not one of the fans of Fish that automatically adores anything Gamehenge related, and add in the fact that The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday was never actually officially released, though some tape copies of the project were handed out by the band at their shows in Vermont following the completion of this recording project. So given all that, I didn't really give this album any consideration at all for a spot in my top 20. But it is too historically important to not take the time to highlight this jam band moment. Let's play the song The Lizards now. The lyrics for the song are a bit silly, but I love the vocal arrangements and I love the music. So let's listen to it now. Enjoy! He lifted up his visor and he turned to me and he began to sing. He said I come from the land of darkness. So far, through multiple episodes of this podcast, I have covered a wide variety of subgenres of rock music. But just plain old commercial rock and roll was still very much being made as well. So let's discuss some of the notable releases in that style for 1987. A couple of the major commercial rock bands that had dominated the charts early in the 1980s had flamed out creatively by 1987, though they were still making recordings. REO Speedwagon had soared to the top of the charts early in the 1980s with a string of popular power ballads REO Speedwagon released the pretty much unlistenable album Life As We Know It in 1987. At this point, REO's quest to continue charting ballads had become a bit desperate and obvious with none of the charm of the well-written songs that had transformed the band's commercial fortunes at the start of the decade. Life As We Know It contained a number of other songs that sounded like the band was trying a bit of a back-to-basics old-school rock and roll style, but they were not being able to quite capture the energy and infuse it with anything interesting or new. It's really a lousy album, perhaps the worst album in REO's entire catalog, in my opinion. That said, two of the ballads off of this album did become moderate-sized hits, 
so the band's desperation did still pay off for them one more time. But this would be the final time that REO would make an appearance on the American pop charts, as the band wound up being unable to keep up with the rapidly changing musical landscape. Meanwhile, Foreigner, who had also scored big with their early 80s power ballads, released the album Inside Information in 1987. This album isn't anywhere near as bad as REO's album was. Instead, it's simply forgettable, middle-of-the-road mainstream rock music without the sort of hooks that Foreigner had once been known for. Two of the ballads on this album went into the top ten, with I Don't Want to Live Without You being the bigger of those two songs, hitting number five on the pop charts. Similar to the REO Speedwagon situation, this album would also be the final Foreigner album to gain them any pop hits, as this band became another one that would be left behind by the wave of new musical ideas, as their own musical ideas became stagnant. Foreigner singer Lou Graham was growing restless with his band's direction, and he put out his own first solo album in 1987 giving him a chance to show off his powerful voice on songs he felt fit his singing style better. Graham's solo debut was titled Ready or Not, and the album was led off by the upbeat commercial rock song Midnight Blue. I used to follow, yeah that's true, but my following days are over, now I just gotta follow through, and I remember what my father said, he said son life is simple. The cherry red or midnight blue. Oh, midnight blue. Midnight blue soared to number five on the pop charts, and the follow up song, Ready or Not, while it didn't make the top 40, it did go to number seven on the rock radio charts. I've always really liked Lou Graham's voice, so I bought this album back in the day, and I genuinely enjoyed it back then, though the songwriting is a bit lackluster, and the deeper cuts on the album really aren't very memorable. Given that Loverboy were a band best known for being sonic clones of Foreigner, perhaps it's not surprising that Loverboy similarly put out their final hit songs as well in 1987 with the song Notorious off of their 1987 album Wild Side being that hit. This was the fifth album for the band, and their first release to not wind up achieving platinum-level sales status. Following albums after this would fare even worse for Loverboy, once again a band that got left behind by musical trends. The Cars had delivered their most successful album back in 1984, with the ultra-slick and commercial Heartbeat City that had been produced by mega-successful producer Mutt Lang. For the follow-up album, 1987's Door to Door, the Cars took control in the production booth and attempted to move their music back more towards their original new wave cool style of their early career. Door to Door did produce one more moderate-level hit for the Cars, with the song You Are the Girl going to number 16. Why don't you flash and smile like you used to do? Why don't you stay for a while? Oh, well, it's up to you. You are the girl that keeps me up at night. You are the But overall, the album didn't manage to capitalize on the band's pop breakthrough, 
nor did it do anything to appease their older fans' thirst for the band to get back to their more edgy original sound. It wound up being the band's worst-selling and worst-charting album, and the band would wind up breaking up the following year after completing their supporting tour for this album. George Harrison made a bit of an unexpected comeback in 1987 with his new album, Cloud Nine. This was Harrison's first new album since his poorly selling and critically panned album, Gone Tropo, had come out in 1982. Cloud Nine soared into the top 10 on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and it added another platinum selling album to Harrison's career and it contained what would become his third song to top the pop charts in America, that song being his cover of an obscure old early 60s R&B song called I've Got My Mind Set On You. It's gonna take time, whole lot of precious time. It's gonna take patience and time. I've Got My Mind Set On You topped out at number two on the English charts. Another song from this album was George Harrison's celebration of his old Beatles days, which was titled When We Was Fab. song was a moderate hit as well, going to number 23 on the American charts and number 25 in England. George Harrison would double down on this new career momentum the following year when he released an album with his new supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys. But coverage of that band will have to wait until someday when I do a countdown of the music of 1988. The band Heart was riding high commercially, but not so much artistically during the mid-1980s. Hart had made a major commercial comeback in 1985 with a self-titled album that would wind up selling over 5 million copies and would deliver four top 10 hits for the band. But that success came at a cost of the band's creative control as their record company had brought in outside songwriters to craft a new sound and image for the band that fit the slick MTV expectations of the era. Hart followed up that album with a new album in 1987 titled Bad Animals. This album contained two more top 10 singles for the band, along with a number 12 hit. Bad Animals went all the way to number two on the album charts, and it sold over 3 million copies. But personally, I can't stand to listen through this entire album in one sitting. It may have been popular, but in my opinion, the music was pretty much lowest common denominator crap, elevated only by the fact that the Wilson sisters are such talented performers. With the feud between Mick and Keith of the Rolling Stones in full fury, Mick Jagger spent the mid-1980s trying to build himself a solo career. Mick's 1985 debut solo album had promising results. It had gained platinum-level sales status, and it had produced two pop hits for him and a third song that got some rock radio play. Mick came back with a second solo album in 1987, but this album didn't maintain that same momentum. This album was titled Primitive Cool, and the album only made it to number 41 in America, and the biggest hit off the album went only to number 39 on the pop charts. The album overall failed to reach even gold-level sales status. Mick Jagger would wind up shelving his solo career for the next six years and get back to work recording and touring with the Rolling Stones. David Bowie had made a successful move into a more commercial pop sound early in the 1980s, 
This resulted in David Bowie's biggest hit songs of his career. In 1987, though, Bowie returned to a more rock and roll sound with his new album, Never Let Me Down. This album featured Peter Frampton as David Bowie's guitar player. The title to me seems a bit ironic because unfortunately, it doesn't seem that Bowie's creative juices were flowing very well, and it really isn't a very interesting album. After the poor reception from fans and critics for Never Let Me Down, Bowie decided to make one of his occasional radical direction changes, and his next project after this album would be to form his new band, Tin Machine. Neil Young's career pretty well bottomed out in 1987 when he released the album Life. This album was his final album on his Geffen Records deal, a record label with whom Neil Young had been in legal battles due to the label having sued him for making what the label termed unrepresentative and non-commercial music. This lawsuit coming despite the fact that Geffen Records had guaranteed Neil Young creative freedom when he had signed his record deal with them. The album Life is a Crazy Horse album, and it is a pretty conventional Neil Young album, except for his continued experiments with more synthesizer-heavy sounds that don't really fit with what you generally expect to hear on Crazy Horse albums. This album release seems like it might have been Neil Young's begrudging attempt to give Geffen what it was that they wanted from him, because the album is pretty representative of Neil's established style, and the synth experiments could be seen as an attempt by Neil Young to make his music connect with the 80s music environment for better commercial success. However, if this album was Neil's attempt to get back to a more commercial sound, it wound up not working for him or the label at all. The album Life stands as Neil Young's worst-selling studio album of his career. And it's actually not really a horrible album. It's just not a very remarkable one or very memorable. A bunch of the songs off this album wound up getting a renewed push by Neil in concert during the era later when he was protesting the American war against terror in the new millennium. And those songs that he brought back do wind up sounding more timely in that context than they did when they were originally released in the late years of the Cold War. Joe Walsh put out another solo album in 1987 with the goofy title of Got Any Gum. This era had to be a bit of a tough time for Joe Walsh since the Eagles were on hiatus throughout the 1980s. And while Joe Walsh had started the decade off with a hit song coming out in 1981, each of Joe Walsh's solo albums during this era sold progressively worse with Got Any Gum topping out at only number 113 on the Billboard album charts. However, Got Any Gum did deliver a pair of songs that got pretty good airplay on rock radio, the bigger of these two songs being the radio song. Warren Zevon released a new album in 1987 titled Sentimental Hygiene. This album, like most of his albums, wowed the rock critics, and it got tons of admiration from his fellow musicians. But also like a lot of Zevon's work, this album made very little commercial impact. The title track of Sentimental Hygiene did get solid airplay on rock radio at the time, hitting number nine on the mainstream rock charts but the album itself 
would top out at only number 63. Everybody The English band The Outfield had hit a home run with their multi-platinum debut album back in 1985. The Outfield released their second album in 1987, this one titled Bangin'. Bangin' failed to live up to the debut album, but it did still produce one more minor pop hit for the band. The song Since You've Been Gone went to number 31. Since you've been gone The album, Bangin', topped out at number 18 on the album charts, and it would wind up achieving gold-level sales status. A number of live rock albums for the year included Live in the City of Life by Simple Minds. Simple Minds may be known as one of the MTV bands and are heavily associated with the movie soundtracks of John Hughes, but Simple Minds didn't really have much of a new wave sound to them. The band were solidly a commercial rock band, and this live album is a very good document of that fact. Also in 1987, Meatloaf released his first career live album, titled Live at Wembley. Unfortunately, this Meatloaf album came during a major career lull for Meatloaf, so it didn't sell well, but the album does put on display that Meatloaf's powerful voice was not just a product of studio production. He was every bit as good of a vocalist live and raw as he was on his studio recordings. A few more minor rock albums from 1987 include the self-titled debut album by Canadian band Frozen Ghost, the self-titled fourth album from Canadian female rocker Lee Aaron, the latest album from Irish blues guitar player Gary Moore, which was titled Wild Frontier, and the British band The Shadows was still grinding away, releasing their 18th studio album in 1987, titled Simply Shadows. One of the most successful rock albums of the year came with the latest album from Fleetwood Mac. This one was titled Tango in the Night. Tango in the Night would be the band's fifth consecutive multi-platinum selling album. The album went to number one in England, and it topped out at number seven in America. Tango in the Night would be the band's last platinum-level studio album, though they did release a 1997 live reunion album called The Dance in 1997, which wound up going multi-platinum as well. These days, there are a number of modern pop acts that tend to have their sound compared to Fleetwood Mac. The band Heim is a popular example of this. But the thing is, to me, while I do hear why those comparisons are being made, it seems to me that the sound of most of these bands are based more on the sound of this specific Fleetwood Mac release than it is on their more famous 70s hit albums. Tango in the Night would actually wind up being Fleetwood Mac's second biggest selling album of their career. And the songs on this album were dominated by Lindsey Buckingham, who had produced the album, and by Christine McVie, who wrote the biggest hits to come off of this album. Many of Stevie Nicks's backing vocals were left off of the final album, and her song contributions were mostly recorded separately from the rest of the band. Nix at this time was busy touring on her solo career, but she was also drinking heavily during the making of this album, and she was still feuding badly with Lindsey Buckingham, who would wind up leaving the group before they got together to tour in support of this album. 
Four of the songs off this album became pop hits, with two of them hitting the American top five. The bigger of those two songs being Christine McVie's song, Little Lies. So and the other top five song being Lindsey Buckingham's song, Big Love. I personally like Big Love a bit better out of these two songs. And that song is now often a highlight of Lindsey Buckingham's live performances, though he has majorly rearranged the song from the version that is found on this album. But let's go ahead and listen to the album version of that song now. Enjoy. Looking out for love. The night so still Oh, how dim your kingdom In that house on the hill Looking out for love Big, big love Next up Let's finish out this episode with a move away from rock music and look instead at some of the jazz releases for 1987. At this point in the 1980s, the jazz genre was a bit anemic. The dominant commercial force in jazz during the decade had been in the rise of rather schlocky, smooth jazz. But even within that lucrative subgenre, 1987 was a pretty quiet year basically because the biggest star of smooth jazz, Kenny G, didn't release new music that year. That's not to say there were no smooth jazz releases. David Sanborn was another star in the smooth jazz form, and he released a new album in 1987, which was titled A Change of Heart. Sanborn had been integrating pop and R&B influences into his playing since his debut back in 1975. And I'll say that while Sanborn is never a go-to artist for me, I do respect Sanborn's playing much more than I do the fairly obvious and uninspired style of Kenny G. Sanborn has done some interesting collaborative and session work during his career. But that said, the album A Change of Heart is a prime example of just how bad and syrupy that the 80s smooth jazz style could be. Sambor's playing here is skilled, and he sometimes throws in a few interesting discordant notes, but the new agey synth atmospherics and the lame electronic rhythmic backing is just atrocious to me. Grover Washington Jr. had begun his career as a fairly enjoyable and accessible soul jazz sax player, but Washington wound up being one of the major forces in kicking off the smooth jazz direction of the 1980s, especially with his wildly successful 1980 album, Wine Light. In 1987, Grover Washington Jr. released the album Strawberry Moon. This was Washington's first album to come out in three years, and it started off his new contract with Columbia Records. Strawberry Moon, to me, is another prime example of just how lame 80s-style smooth jazz could be. It has a lot of its own, fairly cheesy, synth atmospherics. But in the case of this album, the rhythms on the album are not actually electronically programmed like they are on the Sanborn album. And yet, the players that Washington put together for the release nevertheless 
managed to make rhythmic contributions to the album that do wind up sounding like the anemic pre-programmed backbeats that were available on most 80s keyboard synths. Meanwhile, the Pat Metheny group managed to mostly avoid the worst instincts of smooth jazz while still making modern-sounding jazz fusion in the 1980s. Metheny's career hit its commercial height in 1987 when he released the album Still Life Talking, an album that achieved gold-level sales status and won the group a Grammy for Best Jazz Fusion Performance. On Still Life Talking, Matheny leaned into his longtime love for Brazilian music, bringing to mind a modern take on some of the bossa nova-styled albums of the 1960s. Some more old-school jazz greats with new albums out in 1987 included Ornette Coleman with his new album, In All Languages. This was a double album on which Ornette Coleman works both with his old 1950s quartet that helped to innovate free jazz. as well as with his more modern funk jazz group, Primetime. a number of repeated songs by each ensemble on this double disc played in their two varying styles. It's an interesting way to underline the evolution of Ornette Coleman's musical vision during his career. In All Languages is a very good album, one of the best jazz albums of the year, for sure. Another architect of free jazz had been Cecil Taylor, and Cecil Taylor released three new albums in 1987, all of them being recorded live. Two of these three albums from Cecil Taylor feature challenging odysseys of extended avant-garde playing, but the other album is a bit more accessible. This release has Taylor showing off his compositional chops with a series of original works that are presented in much more abbreviated forms than the music of the other two live albums of this year. But that's not to say that Cecil Taylor's playing on this album doesn't still hold many surprises and challenges for the listener. Jazz trumpet player Freddie Hubbard 
had begun his career as part of the hard bop movement. He released two new albums in 1987, the first of which, Life Flight, shows two sides of Freddie Hubbard's modern style, with the first side sounding like a nod to modern accessible and commercial jazz sounds, while the second side of this album presents a much more traditional bop style of jazz. The second album from Hubbard is The Eternal Triangle. This album was a collaboration with Woody Shaw, and the two trumpet players bring the best out of each other on this album, encouraging each to show off their unique skills, but also playing off of each other masterfully. This is another one of the good jazz releases for the year. Sanders released multiple albums in 1987 as well. The first of these albums was titled Africa, and it's an album on which Pharaoh Sanders pays obvious homage to his musical influence, John Coltrane, though only one of the songs on the album is actually a John Coltrane composition. But the entire album has Pharaoh Sanders obviously mimicking some of Coltrane's famous playing idiosyncrasies. The second 1987 album from Pharaoh is titled, Oh Lord, Let Me Do No Wrong. And the third album for the year is A Prayer Before Dawn. These two albums are a bit laid back, as if Sanders is perhaps seeking to connect a bit with the smooth jazz audience. But Pharaoh Sanders is not able to quite diminish his interesting playing enough to make his music quite meek enough to really please that type of audience. A couple of interesting releases for 1987 that were on the very fringes of jazz, but really the music on these albums is a bit too eclectic to be held within the bounds of a single genre description. One of these albums came from the group The Lounge Lizards, and the other one came from solo artist John Zorn. The Lounge Lizards released their second full-length studio album of their career, titled No Pain for Cakes. The Lounge Lizards had a lot of influences in the jazz tradition, but they also featured a tongue-in-cheek embrace of the excesses of the lounge music culture, and the band always sought to include instrumental elements that would help to subvert the band being too purely jazz-like. The Lounge Lizards album for 1987 was Play My Clowns on Fire. Meanwhile, John Zorn was a composer and multi-instrumentalist who could make excellent, interesting jazz, but Zorn refused to be pigeonholed into any genre limitations. On Zorn's 1987 album, Spillane, he presents a tribute to the mystery writer Mickey Spillane. At its heart, the music on this Spillane album owes a lot to the early 70s jazz-funk fusion style, but it also has heavy doses of surf-rock guitar sounds. The album sounds very much like a soundtrack 
for a fun but low-budget hard-boiled detective movie. It's a rather fun listen. One of the new inspirations in jazz began to surface around this time with some of the early experiments with what would become known as acid jazz. A lot of the early acid jazz was being created by club DJs at the time who were using obscure old driving jazz albums and infusing those albums with modern club beats. But there were some musical groups that were beginning to try and create similar music organically. James Taylor Quartet was one of these groups. They were a British group that had no relation to the famous singer-songwriter of the same name. James Taylor Quartet debuted their recording in 1987, first with a single release in which the group covered Herbie Hancock's title song for the old movie Blow Up, and then with their first album coming out in 1987, titled Mission Impossible. On Mission Impossible, the James Taylor Quartet covered a series of old movie soundtrack songs from 1960s spy movies. And then the band quickly followed up that album the same year with the new album, The Money Spider. On The Money Spider, the James Taylor Quartet created original music that was designed to sound like they were actually making their own original spy movie soundtrack. Both of these albums are full of pretty fun, high-energy stuff, though the James Taylor Quartet didn't show a whole lot of the typical tight and nimble dynamics of most jazz bands. The group really seemed to also absorb a lot of inspiration from punk rock in order to emphasize energy in their playing over technical precision. I'm going to go ahead and play the title song from The Money Spider now. This will end this episode. Please join me next week when I do a final run-up episode on the music of 1987, where I'll be covering the R&B genre, as well as some world music for the year, and some notable soundtrack recordings from 1987. As always, if you want to send me any comments, criticisms, or just want to say hi, you can contact me via sending an email to tony at roadtojamnation.com, or you can join my Facebook group, also called Road to Jam Nation. Or you can also find me on what formerly was known as Twitter and is now apparently called X. I'm on that platform under just my normal name, Tony Kurillic. Now here's the James Taylor Quartet song, The Money Spider. Enjoy the song. <laughs> ¶¶